0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for that death of Jesus on the cross for us. We thank you that we can sing it. We thank you that we can read your word. And we pray now that as we come to look at your word from Matthew's gospel, that you would speak to each one of us. Amen. Please be seated. I know it's um, a bit of a time since the reading, so... Just to reiterate, we're on page 1000 and 1001 of our Bibles. If you want to have a look at that, that might be good. And uh, as you look it, through it, you will see that um, there are quite a lot of references to uh, afraid, The word afraid comes up quite a lot, and in other translations it talks about fear. There's another word that it uses. And uh, I wondered, uh, as I was thinking and praying about this passage, I wondered uh, what fear have we experienced? I'm sure that all of us have felt fear at some points of our life. I'd like you, uh, just for a couple of seconds, perhaps to think about that, what fear have you experienced? I will share with you one of mine later on, because we'll be looking at the effects of fear within our passage tonight. Well, there's uh, quite a lot in our passage tonight. We've uh, we've titled it Man Alive uh, because uh, this is what it's all about. Um, But this chapter, this last short chapter in Matthew's account, a chapter which is the climax of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, includes quite a few things. It includes, for instance, that uh, Jesus is risen from the dead. It includes... The fact that there were two Marys present, there was an angel, there were soldiers, there was Jesus, there was Jesus' promises, there were religious leaders, and not least of all, there was an earthquake, and there were instructions given to people. And uh, as I looked at this, I thought, well, there are, in fact, four themes that seem to come from these 15 verses. Four themes. And the first one, the first theme is that uh, it states that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And I wondered, well, how did people of the time react to this? How did they respond to it? And how does our world respond to it? And how do we respond to it? Well, of course, the belief in the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, it's the core, isn't it, of our belief as Christians. We missed a week last week because it was Easter Sunday, but the week before, Jonathan spent quite a considerable amount of time in his sermon on showing us how the belief in the resurrection was possible, how in fact it was essential and how, in fact, it was logical as well. And I would would like to say to you, I won't ask you how many weren't here, but if you weren't here that week, I would like to uh, say to you, well, do download that sermon from our webpage, because it was a fantastic uh, account of why the belief in the resurrection was the essential of our faith. Also, interestingly enough, I was looking uh, this afternoon on uh, Christchurch Cockfosters' webpage where our uh, new rector Richard James is at present uh, administering and he has written a paper or a letter to his church on Jesus' resurrection and why we can believe it. So have a look at that as well because that's a very good written account as well. Now this, of course, is maybe obvious to us, but uh, to some people it is not obvious at all. In fact, a recent poll of people who said that they were Christians, of that poll, 25% said they didn't believe in this event at all. Well, that may be the case, Um, but it is the essential of our faith. Within the Christian community worldwide, in fact, we may well have disagreements about many things, but this is at the heart of our common faith. It's the faith of Christians of every denomination around the globe, whether they be Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestants, or even Evangelicals. So, although we can't prove the fact of the resurrection of Jesus, it follows on from the very nature of who God is. The God that we know of, of the God of Israel, and the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a ministry that shows that God who created us, God who loves us, and wants us to have eternity with him. And the evidence of this passage in front of us is that the tomb was empty and that Jesus had, through God's power, conquered death. In fact, the salvation that Jesus offers us from that punishment for our sinful actions is dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus. So I'd like to suggest and that first theme is absolutely paramount, that the, that the uh, tomb was empty and he rose from the dead. The second theme that I found from this passage was that uh, the presence and importance of the spiritual and the supernatural events taking place at work. Now, we live, don't we, in an age where there's a passive denial of spiritual and heavenly forces within reality. Perhaps the age of the Enlightenment, the scientific Western mindset, has had the effect on us that for many people, they have little or no consciousness of the supernatural. Well, this is in complete contrast to what the Bible actually reveals. The Bible reveals the reality of the supernatural of the power and authority that goes beyond the physical world in which we live. And here in our passage tonight, we see evidence of this in this passage. And we read of it in Jesus' life in the Gospels also. And so, within our passage, we come across an angel. And uh, whether they are true artistic impressions or not, who can tell? But angels are spiritual beings. Angels are created to do the work of God. And the word angel describes in the Bible a whole range of spirits that God has created, including both good and bad spirits. And so we've got categories like cherubins, seraphim, and archangels. Now, if you don't think this is very important, within the Old Testament, angels are actually mentioned 108 times. And in the New Testament, they're mentioned 165 times. And so we've got ample evidence from the Bible to base our knowledge of angelic beings. In fact, the scripture speaks about the creation of them, and it's clear that God made them. It says in Colossians 1, for instance, verses 16 and 17, for by him all things were created both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created by him and for him. So we have then biblical evidence concerning angelic beings and their work. We see this, of course, also, at the beginning of Jesus' life, where we read of the visitation of angels again. We read of the use of dreams to give instructions to Mary and Joseph and the wise men the angels visit the shepherds. We also read that angels minister to Jesus at different times of his life. If you remember back to when Jesus was tempted, when the devil was present, and the supporting action of the angels. When we read in the Bible of God moving within the natural world, we often read of major happenings. Think about what we read of in the previous chapter in Chapter 27, a a few weeks ago, the account of the crucifixion. There was an earthquake. It says that in verse 51. The earth shook and the rocks split. There There was an unnatural darkness for three hours at the crucifixion. There was the curtain in the temple split all by itself. And in the Old Testament, we also read of supernatural events taking place. We think of the exodus of the people from, the, uh, from of the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt, when the Red Sea passed, allowing the people to travel through. And of course, within Jesus' ministry, we see him performing many miracles, many spiritual events, events that can't be explained by natural processes. So think of that example of when he calmed the storm. He fed the 5,000. He healed people of illnesses. He cast out demons. And of course, as we read of uh, future events that's going to happen to the world in Revelation, where we read accounts of battles between God and the devil's forces, the earth being changed into a new creation. And so through all these events, what do we see? We see that we have a God that is powerful, more powerful than the creation he made. And so, here in our passage tonight, we read that God acted, an earthquake happened, which would have caused fear to those that experienced the power and their inability to control the forces of the earth. Now, on top of this, of course, not only did they experience this earthquake, there appears to be an angel. A mighty man who is clothed in whiteness. It's difficult, isn't it? Imagine what it would have been like to be in front of that tomb, looking down into it, and we see a mighty figure clothed in terrifying white, and he was sitting on the stone which was rolled away. What well, I wondered, how would I have felt? How would we have felt? They felt fear. And this passage shows us the importance and the reality of spiritual and supernatural events within the work of God here on earth. And as I thought about this, I thought, well, how does this relate to us? Well, if we are praying for God to be working within our midst, surely we should be praying for these type of events to be taking place if we want to see God changing lives and expanding his kingdom here in Norwich today. We need supernatural events to change people, to bring them to the cross of Christ. So that was the second theme, the presence and importance of spiritual and supernatural events. Third theme, I thought, was the different ways that people responded as witnesses to these events. I've listed them up there for you. There was fear, and I've mentioned fear before. There was wonder, there was a lack of control, there was obedience, there was joy, and there was worship. Now fear, of course, gets a bad press, doesn't it? And much of our time in society, we spend as much as we can in preventing people feeling fear. It gets a bad press. But it can be a good thing because it can protect us from wrongdoing and from unfortunate events. And here's my example for you. My wife, Elizabeth, and I were on holiday a few years ago in Zimbabwe. We were driving on an an unmade road, most of the roads were unmade, and we were in a hard car, which wasn't too brilliant, it started out with a bald tyre, which I had to get changed, and we were driving along through the bush, the bush was about six foot high, I suppose it wasn't like our little bushes. And we were driving slowly, 25 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour, because we were actively looking around at the landscape and wanting to see as much wildlife as we could. And then as I was driving about 30 yards ahead of me, suddenly I saw this massive male African elephant walk out onto the road. And he wasn't the only one. There were about five of them, and they came on in the line. Now, at this point, it flashed through my mind that we'd been told that not very long ago, uh, there'd been some German tourists who'd been doing exactly the same as us, but unfortunately, the elephants had risen up and landed on this car, crushing them and causing severe problems. I was frankly scared. So what did I do? I stopped the car into the reverse, looked in the mirror, checked there was no one directly behind me, and gently and as quietly as I could possibly do it, reversed back about 50 yards, giving plenty of space for the elephants to cross. Fear had given me the right action to follow. Fear is sometimes a good thing. But of course... It can, fear can, to lead us to irrational behaviour and it can relieve us to bondage. It's not good to be controlled by fear. And what do we see here? We see that the guards, the hard guards, the men who had been trained to fight and kill were shaking, such was their terror. They were unable to respond, they were unable to move. Because we're told that they were like dead men, all caused by the earthquake and the appearance of this angel, and the stone rolled away. Remember, the soldiers had been sent to guard the tomb. They'd been sent to prevent what had clearly happened, the removal of the body of Jesus. No wonder they were afraid, and this prevented them acting at once. And then, of course, we had these other witnesses, the two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, we are told, who had come to look at the tomb. They would have known that the tomb was closed by the stone, but they still came. Such was their grief over the death of their master. And what they saw must have been a mighty surprise, surprised by the earthquake and the presence of this amazing man sitting on the stone. And so they reacted, as most of us would, with fear, as the man spoke to them. The angel even reminded them of what Jesus had spoken to them about at the Last Supper. Chapter 26, verse 32 Jesus said at the Last Supper, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. The angel showed that he knew why they had come to the tomb, he knew of what they had experienced with Jesus and provided evidence for them that Jesus had, in fact, risen. He'd shown them the empty tomb, but he, but he did more than that, didn't he? He gave the women instructions and a command of what they should do. They were to go and tell Jesus' disciples of this experience that they'd had, to tell them of the resurrection of him. They were to give further proof that Jesus did rise, because Jesus was going to meet them in Galilee. And I think, isn't that a wonderful thing to do? Because when we're in shock, when we're fearful, isn't it good to have something to do, rather than sitting around moping and worrying? And this is what the angel provided for the Marys. He provided a job for them to do, to go on to a journey to spread the good news of the resurrection. So they reacted with fear. But they also reacted with joy because Jesus had said that what Jesus said had been fulfilled. Their master wasn't dead. He was resurrected, even if they were still a bit fearful. So they reacted with joy, but they also reacted with obedience. They did what they were instructed to do, to go to the rest of the disciples and share with them what they had seen and heard, that his disciples are to go to Galilee, where they will find the risen Christ. Now, there's a little bit of a substrata in this here. Why Galilee? Why to go to Galilee? Why is it that Galilee was chosen by Jesus? Well, it's an important part of the story. It's important because in the Gospels, Galilee was seen as the doorway to the world. It was the world looking out towards the Roman Empire. And it was the way that the light of the Gospel was going to go out to the whole world and not just the Jewish people, not just for the original disciples. And it's not just for us either. It's to be taken to the world which doesn't know and love Jesus. God seeks to have fellowship with all people, and not just the Jewish people and not just us. And that's important, I think, to us to remember tonight. The gospel is for all people. It's for people who are different to us, for people that are on the outside of our society. If you want evidence of this, look at who Jesus spoke to, had dealings with, and healed. They were often those who were on the outside of their society and not the religious and well-educated people. But at this point, I thought a what-if question. What if the two Marys hadn't been obedient to the angel and to Jesus' instructions? What if the two Marys hadn't gone back to the disciples, what would have happened to the spreading of the good news? Well, of course, we don't know, do we? We can only speculate. We can only speculate that the spreading of the kingdom, the growth of Jesus' church, would at least have been delayed. For us, though, it's a valid question, isn't it? What if we don't share the good news of Jesus' resurrection, share the good news of God's power to overcome the power of death, if we don't share it with our friends, our colleagues, our family, what effect will that have on them and on God's kingdom here in knowledge? Well, we've seen then in our passage that the women were obedient. They did what they were told to do by the angel leading them to meeting Jesus which led to worship. See that in verse 10. And as they worshipped Jesus, their their fears were annulled and they received further encouragement and instruction from him. Their joy was complete. And I should like to suggest to you tonight that worship of Jesus leads to obedience and to joy. And so the women then responded with fear, with obedience and with joy. But what about the response of the religious authorities? Again, to another form of fear. Well, we read that the soldiers reported back all that had happened. They had received the knowledge of the resurrection. They had received the knowledge of the angel and the stone being rolled away. Well, the religious leaders' response was not to worship, not to seek if this was, in fact, the fulfillment of the scriptures, the prophets' pronouncements. No, their fear led them to deceiving the religious, the Roman authorities and to the people who they were spiritually responsible for. A deception was planned, enabled by a financial bribe, and according to verse 15, successfully completed. The truth was denied. The power of the resurrection and the saving action of Jesus' death denied to the people of God, the people of Israel. So that's, another, that's my third theme. How did people respond to the resurrection? My fourth theme and last one is this. And I think this is perhaps a real encouragement to us tonight. We see that Jesus uses flawed people in his mission. Despite the fear of the women... Despite the fear of the disciples, which we read of in Acts, how they cowered behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, Jesus still wants to use them. He wants his disciples to know that they will meet him in Galilee and have the experience of meeting the risen Jesus. And he was going to provide them with an experience that will strengthen them in their ministry after he has ascended to heaven. So that's a fantastic thing that we can take hold of. Because what is amazing about this is that Jesus, therefore, forgives them for their failures. He even calls them brothers. Look at verse 10. Peter had denied being a disciple of Jesus. The whole of the disciples had betrayed him and deserted him at his time of need, at his trial and his death. But now he restores them as his emissaries, and trust them once again to represent him. And so it can be with us too, I think. So it can be us. We can rejoice in the fact. We can take hope that we can be uh, people that God wants to take, take back. We are like his disciples. We are flawed, both individually and as a church. But the good news is that we have at Easter to proclaim. This good, good news is not just that Jesus died for us, not just that he rose again and defeated death, not just that there's a life beyond the grave, but that Jesus continues to call flawed people to be his disciples, to follow him into the world and to represent him. So how then? can we conclude from this passage? How can we conclude as we look towards our general meeting next week and we look towards the future life of this church ahead of us? I think we can be encouraged, can't we? We can be encouraged and we can be strengthened in the knowledge that we have a God who is a powerful God, a God who chooses to give his own son to earth to die on that cross a God who was prepared to allow his son to take the punishment for our sins on that cross, but also a God who by the power of his Holy Spirit brought Jesus out of the tomb into the resurrected life where he was able to talk to his friends, able to eat fish, able to be clasped and able to combat fear and give joy to those that believed and worshipped him. And that Holy Spirit, with that power, is the same Holy Spirit that's promised to his followers as they come to faith in Jesus. It's the same Holy Spirit which came with power at Pentecost. The same Holy Spirit which gives gifts of tongues and prophecy and healing today. And that's the good news that we have got. That's the good news that we can share with those that we live with and work with. God is alive and well. Jesus is resurrected and will return again. And we can all say, Amen. Amen.